what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Nigel Warburton is a freelance writer, philosopher, and podcaster. He's the author of many books on philosophy, including Philosophy the Basics, A Little History of Philosophy, Free Speech, A Very Short Introduction, many more. His podcast, Philosophy Bites, which he makes with David Edmonds, interviews top philosophers on a range of subjects and has been downloaded over 40 million times. He also runs a philosophy blog, Virtual Philosopher. Nigel Warburton, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. It's a pleasure. You're known not just as a philosopher, but mostly as a popularizer of philosophy. Obviously, very successful books, newspaper columns, but also hugely successful podcasts. What was it that made you want to be a popularizer? That's quite a hard question because I don't think I ever sat down and said, Oh, I want to popularize philosophy. I actually see myself as a writer with a special interest in philosophy and now a podcaster as well. Um, everything I've done, I wanted to be accessible to people. I don't see the point of writing or speaking in a way that excludes other people unless there's some very good reason for going technical. And so I guess it's the simple answer to your question is that clarity is a, is a great virtue as far as I'm concerned, and that's what I aim at. Why is it a virtue for you? Because it's a matter of respect for other people that you speak and write in a way that they can understand without forcing them to do unnecessary work, without using obscure language, without alienating people. I guess it's, it could, you could even see it as connected with humanism. I think there are some people who enjoy using very long, obscure words because it shows how clever they are or use very long, convoluted sentences because it reveals that they've studied Latin and Greek and can handle those sort of subordinate clauses and so on. But uh, I'm much more um, influenced by George Orwell's approach to writing mm. and, and the idea that you should say things clearly, simply, without unnecessarily um, complicating matters. And I think in philosophy, where I've written most, it's very tempting to use the jargon. It's very tempting to nod to the names of authors without actually specifying quite what about them it is that you're referring to. Mm. And I think that there is an academic tradition of keeping philosophy away from a wider readership, although there's some excellent examples of, of popularizers, include, including David Hume, Bertrand Russell, um, in our own day, you know, Daniel Dennett, uh, Peter Singer particularly, who's a su superb right. writer. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't usually get the credit for being a superb writer but he because it's almost invisible what he's doing he does it so well that list that roll call of honor is is interesting given what you've said about it possibly being a sort of um a humanist tendency because of course you've just listed there a, a great number of 
um, humanist writers from George Orwell to Bertrand Russell to Daniel Dennett and obviously you. So do you think that there is a, a connection between this this wish to be understood, this wish to be um, to express things clearly and the sort of the, the, the lay approach, the humanist approach? Is it about not being obscure, not believing in special knowledge, but instead, you know, common knowledge? I think going back to what I said earlier, that it's more about showing a certain sort of respect to other people and treating people as your equal. The assumption is there isn't that much difference between human beings and most people share quite a lot of common experience and we should be able to communicate with one another about the deepest questions we can ask ourselves. That's what I think philosophy potentially deals with. It also deals with some academic technicalities, some very um, very detailed questions about logic and language which aren't immediately accessible to a general public. But in the core area, it's not it's not theoretical physics. We're talking about life and death and how we treat other people, how we live in a society, whether there is a God, those sorts of questions that most people ask themselves at some point in their lives and most people discuss. So we should be able to speak to one another about that. And so possibly um, there is a connection there that is because of the egalitarian tendencies of mm. humanists. Mm. But I don't think it's got anything particularly directly connected with the non-religious aspect. No, 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 no. yeah, I can see that. You've written about writing, haven't you? You wrote a uh, a book about, I think it was for students really, about essay writing. And you said there something similar to what, what you've said here, um, about uh, you know wanting to communicate being a, a mark of respect, but you also said that writing well helped you think well. I believe that. I think writing is a kind of thinking that very few people have a kind of fully formed idea, which they they then transfer to the laptop or transfer to the page. It's the process of trying to create something that allows you to think and revising and editing that it allows you to think clearly is one way of thinking i mean people speak like that as well they don't necessarily formulate what they're going to say i'm not formulating and rehearsing what i'm saying now and then speaking it i'm just speaking so i think writing for particularly for professional writers is very much a question of discovering and and um, refining what you think it's not putting your ideas down on paper typically though it can be if you've been for a long walk and worked a few things out you know it can be like that but for most people it's the process of of writing that is the thinking and for you is that how your thoughts develop on the page in as much as they have any um <laughs> you have lots of thoughts come on <laughs> uh, i often jot down ideas and then write and the writing is better than the jotted down ideas or I talk to people I think through the philosophy bites podcast that I make with mm. David Edmonds I've interviewed literally hundreds of philosophers over the last 10 years or so and I actually have thought quite a lot in those conversations that I think conversation is another very good way of clarifying thought I mean that connects very much with some of my thoughts about free speech as well yeah. Dialogue is particularly good for human beings in lots of ways, socially, um, developmentally, but also in terms of thinking. When you 
come up against ideas which may not seem true at first or which need a bit of clarification or somebody forces you to think through what you've just said and rephrase it so it's more e- more accessible, easier to understand or or perhaps more watertight as an argument. Those sorts of interactions are, are the kinds of things you might try and have on the page with yourself, as it were, as you're writing, but, but it's a particular kind of thinking through speaking with other people that is an, an excellent way of developing ideas, I think, and, and fun as well. You, come, you mentioned free speech then. Of course, you wrote a, um, a, a volume of free speech in the Fairshire Introduction series, and that covered a whole range of different contemporary issues in relation to free speech um and those issues are obviously still with us but beyond that in terms of the value free speech as a value um you've got quite clear thoughts about that i've got other people's thoughts about that mostly uh, in the sense that i'm I, I would say i'm broadly a liberal in the sense that i think free speech should or extensive freedom of thought and expression are very valuable aspects of a society. They're important politically, they're important emotionally for most people in the sense of being able to express their viewpoint on the world. But there are limits which should be set by law and by etiquette. Um, it's not anything goes, but the default position should should be in favour of extensive freedom of thought, even for the ideas of those people we think are absurd and and even potentially dangerous. There's a point where you have to draw the line, but it's it's not where they're potentially dangerous, it's where they actively become dangerous. And that's very hard to draw the line, as anybody who knows, anybody who's thought at all about free speech mm. will recognise where you draw the line on a, each particular case. It's almost like um, uh, case law, in a sense, that you have to yeah, take into yeah. the details of, of the you have to take into account the details of the the particular circumstances and the particular subtleties of what's going on. It's not an easy thing to lay down a law about, but I think the world is better when people can disagree with one another and aren't preemptively silenced. And why is that? Why do you think that is better? Is it because of what, what the, the good things it gives rise to, or is it because of something that, you know, something personally satisfying in being able to speak freely i think there are two important aspects there for me i'm not convinced by john stuart mill's optimism about um, truth emerging through the collision of error and truth Mm. um, because it often doesn't i mean he recognized it often doesn't but but he was pretty optimistic that the kind of ongoing seminar would lead to um less dogmatic thinking at least and I'm tempted by that I mean it's true that when you don't have your views challenged it's easy to fall back into what he called dead dogma yeah yeah it may be one of those things where the reverse is true it's true that if you don't have your views challenged then you're going to be dogmatic but it's not necessarily true that if you do you're going to grow into truth (laughs) but I've got a strong emotional um, revulsion to being silenced and I think a lot of people have that feeling that as an adult, it's part of a mark of respect that we're allowed to have a viewpoint on the world and on the questions that matter, and that we should be able to communicate that with other people in a civil way. Um, and 
so there's an emotional aspect there's a there's there's also the uh, catalyst to thought aspect that mm. mill drew attention to as well in non liberty the the way in which people with whom you disagree are the best people to have a discussion with in some ways because they're mm. the ones who help you work out what you actually do think and what matters whether you come to agree with them more or less it they still stimulate you in a way and i think having a world of diverse opinions like having a world of diverse viewpoints including religious viewpoints is better than having a a kind of monoculture um in which everybody grows um i don't know corn um or yeah. maize you know we 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 want to have as it were a biodiversity of ideas and the best way to do that is i think to have extensive freedom of expression also i'd add i i made this short podcast series for index on censorship uh, a while back called free speech bites where i interviewed a number of people who had been um victims of oppression for speaking out in various countries including belarus mm-hmm. and myanmar um people who'd been tortured for their views people who'd been in one case a guy had been in, in solitary confinement for i think over 2 years argonar a comedian um and i was struck by how much they were in favor of free of extensive freedom of expression yeah. having been through all that they're still prepared to stand up and say that this is what they think is a really important value and even more amazingly they would exercise that value again in amazingly courageous ways because they think that it's important that their views should be should be heard and and their views i think in both cases i'm thinking of in belarus um and and in in myanmar their views were broadly correct and and should be listened to but but they were you know they were treated abominably for speaking out those people who too readily silence other people are on the wrong side i feel the kind of puritanical um mm. preemptive action that we sometimes see when people with whom you disagree get no platformed or um mm. forcibly removed from places where they're about to speak that seems to me um worse than letting even quite obnoxious views be aired um yeah. and argued with i'm all for the argument not for the not for the muscling of the um the speaker off the podium but you seem to be saying there that part of your motivation for for the, for valuing free speech in this way is that you you almost feel you you owe it as a duty to those people who are silenced around the world i almost do or actually more than almost i think having i've got tremendous respect for people like that um it it most of us are lucky enough not to have been in prison and tortured um for our views but i'm not saying there's a slippery slope that we're inevitably going to go down when we start um censoring people but it feels to me that the people who are so ready to censor are so sensitive to views which they dislike mm. are heading that way it really does people have been told to unfollow me on twitter or or they will be unfollowed by so and so um because because i've expressed the view that freedom of expression is an important value in society um so i'm just defending what i take to be broadly tra- traditional liberal 
views, but I want to update them and say that I do believe that hate speech is a kind of harm and that there are certain kinds of psychologically damaging speech which should be legislated against. Well, let's come on to that because that's that's an interesting angle on this, isn't it? I mean, you've you've laid out your beliefs about uh, free speech, why it's important, the, the the good that comes of it, and why you value it and think other people should value it. But um, what about that uh, other side of well, not the other side of things, but you know the um, the justifiable, the legitimate limitations? You, you you were saying there that I mean everyone. Well, not everyone, because you know there's the First Amendment in America, but uh, the uh, the large majority of reasonable people <laughs> um, do draw a line, for example, at vile harassment um, or you know which harms people's well-being or um, incitement to violence. Right? Those are sort of things that most people say, okay, that that is something you could justify taking action against. But beyond that, where do you what do you lay out as being justifiable limitations? Well, I was thinking of the kind of hate speech where somebody uses words to damage somebody psychologically, where the the motivation and the very likely effect is real belittlement of somebody. That's very different from having a discussion about something which somebody else objects to, where you it's name calling and and using pejorative words about people over and over again. And it's obviously context dependent. So it's not easy to lay down a no. simple rule about this, but I do think there are cases. I mean, you see it. Is there an example that you? But yeah. Well, I I think somebody who like imagine a horrible teacher who constantly belittles somebody for making mathematical mistakes over and over again. Says you're stupid, you're an idiot, you can't do maths, you should go home now. You're gonna, you're a failure. You're never going to be a mathematician. You're not even going to get um, through this test. I don't know what you're doing in my class. You know, those sorts of repeated, it's a kind of abuse. And it's because it's verbal, it's not merely causing offence. It's actually potentially damaging somebody. I mean, I've picked an easy example because you have a vulnerable child, but you can imagine somebody doing that to an adult. And you also have a role of a teacher there as well. I mean, it's that person was specifically a teacher. They weren't just someone who happened to be saying to someone, oh, you're really rubbish at maths all the time. But somebody in a position of power can use words to harm another person who's in a position, a more kind of subordinate posi- position to them, for sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I, why I'm saying this is because famously John Stuart Mill drew the line between um, causing offence, which is tolerable, but not necessarily desirable. But, you, you know, you, we all cause offence to people. Humanists cause offence to religious people a lot of the time just by existing. Um, um, he drew the line between that and inciting violence. And obviously he didn't want incitement to violence to be a legal form of free expression. Um, and, and he made that clear. But that was the limit for him, the incitement to violence. Mm. But I'm saying we have a more psychologically sophisticated understanding of the harm that words can do to people yeah and i think a kind of malicious repetitive hate speech can be at least as damaging as hitting somebody with a stick if not worse what if the child went on to become you know like a win a nobel prize in mathematics or something as a result of this treatment would it really have been a harm you know okay so my grand what's harm my grandfather became a professional pianist but his his father used to lock the piano 
to stop him practicing. There's probably a causal connection between that, but the harm that the my great grandfather mm. did to to my grandfather was still a harm. Yeah, it. I can see that. I suppose the def. I mean, I, I, I just no one cares what I think. This is about what you think. But personally, just to inject a personal belief of my own for the moment, I completely agree with you. I think that that there there are there are justifiable, legitimate, proportionate limits to people's expression that you know can be made in order to prevent harm to others short of you know the violence and the physical harm and so on but what i struggle with and it's interesting to to find out what you how you mold your beliefs around this is what harm really consists of because these things can be very subjective if you take for example the recent um brouhaha about uh, a cartoon of muhammad being used in a school re lesson to teach about current events to do with blasphemy right so there there are people who will say this and in fact there's a, a an mp in the house of commons you know Shah, who said the the use of such images being subjected to such images uh images of a uh, a very well-respected holy figure um are a sort of emotional harm they cause damage they cause psychological harm to those Muslims who believe that this is something that shouldn't be shown. Now, I remember um, hearing at a conference from a, a young woman who um, had been a Muslim. I mean, she was on her way out of the religion, I, I inferred from her remarks, um, at the point when various cartoons shot to sort of global headlines. Um, and she described how offended and disgusted she had felt. And then she went on to describe the process, though, that the more that she viewed particular cartoons it was charlie hebdo as it as it happens not the dutch danish cartoons but charlie hebdo cartoons the more that she engaged with them and was aware of the ridicule of 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 those voices in the debate who were saying this is ridiculous to you know get upset about a cartoon the more she realized it was ridiculous and she changed her mind on various things it pushed her further on her journey away from the religion she was brought up with into the um more non-religious outlook she then had and she was positioning that obviously as having been a harm at the time but in the end a great benefit so we, wh- whose interpretation of, of of harm is going to is going to rule really in that in that that's that in in that decision making process that's the, that's what i would struggle with what do you think about that well i never said it was easy <laughs> but i think we know the kinds of considerations to bring to bear on these cases. And as I said, my starting position as a default is to preserve as extensive a freedom of expression as possible and to allow that people will be very offended by some things other people want to say and do. That's just the nature of uh, a complex, diverse world. Um, We we I, there are lots of things that people do that offend me um but i hope i would be tolerant enough not to stop them doing those things and stop saying those things if they're not physically harming other people and if they're not psychologically damaging them in a malicious way so it's psychological damage that's malicious I suppose is the test. Well, I think so. Yeah, that's my starting point. But it's it's um... so people's intentions do matter, not just the effects of their actions, but their intentions. If you're going to make a judgment on these free speech questions, 
I mean, hadn't you noticed that? That's that's hum- humanity. That's of course the intentions okay. matter. If I if I flip a switch, uh, uh, a light switch, and instead of the light coming on, I electrocute somebody next door, even though I didn't know you'd wired that up. You know that that's a very different act from just turning a light switch on. But it's not because of my intentions. And you would judge me differently if I deliberately wired up the person next door to be electrocuted. Mm-hmm. We always we always take intentions into account. That's what the law is so much interested in mens rea and and the intentions that people have. The difference between murder and homicide. The difference between um, um, uh, uh, different kinds of physical violence that are accidental and deliberately done those are um are all taken into account in judging the severity of a crime or whether it even is a crime and and that seems a very human thing to do we 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 live in a world of understanding each other not just through outcomes but through whether that was an accidental unexpected outcome of of our action are there other freedoms that you find yourself attached to? I mean, freedom of expression, we, we've, we've discussed are there, and freedom of thought, which you, you sort of seem to believe are uh, linked together, you know, yoked, yoked together somehow. Are there other um, freedoms to which you find yourself particularly committed? My more utopian commitment, which obviously isn't <laughs> possible, but would be for freedom of movement of people around the world. I mean, I think... If it were possible somehow to open borders, I would love that. Um, I find um, restriction on immigration, which seems pretty arbitrary sometimes, particularly in Britain at the moment, um, disturbing as somebody who is drawn to a cosmopolitan outlook. I think we're just inhabitants of the world. We have cultural differences. We have localities in which we grew up. But... um, People have very good reasons for moving away from some of those, and and it's it's a, I mean, there's no easy solution, but you know, in an ideal world, there should be greater movement, greater freedom of movement than there is now. Um, I worry about the kind of national borders idea where people lock down and present all kinds of rationalizations about why such and such people can't come in, can't possibly come in and pollute our isle. Um, this is uh, a worrying rhetoric that we're seeing at the moment. Well, let's stick with that one, actually, because I think that's a very interesting one in which you have quite an interesting position because a lot of people who make freedom of of, of movement type arguments are making essentially political arguments. But I read you talking about freedom of movement when you, where you used a, a comparison with, um, uh, was it from Gulliver's Travels? When Gulliver's tied down and has zero freedom of movement. And, 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 and the expression that you've just... Um, and that was very vivid for me because, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, so you know, you could think about freedom of movement in the world and national borders as a sort of political issue. Well, you could just think of it as a basic individual freedom, um, which is, you know, people are going to be more or less constrained in their abilities to move around. And you're, in a sense, saying that's the type of constraint that national borders are. They're not so much political as they are constraints on human beings, sort of social and personal freedom. Is that right? Possibly. But I mean, I I don't want to get hung up on this point because you asked me about freedoms and that's just a kind of utopian thought, but I don't see how. Okay, but but I think it's interesting. But I've got a a more... You've got another one, a better one. Okay, go on. um, Local version of this, which is, I love going for walks, I love cycling. I find 
the lack of freedom of movement in the way that people own large tracts of land and keep other people out very disturbing mm-hmm. um the there's something about um something wonderful about uh, public footpaths and bridleways and so on which allow a certain kind of respectful freedom of movement across the countryside and just around oxford i've several times encountered people who put barbed wire fences across what seem to be footpaths or bridleways they put a large number of signs saying private keep out do not go through this lane do not cut through this uh, driveway um i have some um again strong emotional feelings that we should be freer than that that owning huge amounts of land without good reasons for keeping other people off it is is not a good way to live um putting up those big fences that stop people crossing a field when all they want to do is enjoy the countryside seems to me and they're not damaging crops and they're not threatening wildlife they're not doing anything particularly disrespectful it seems to me that the the presumption that we should um always favor the private land owner land owner above the rambler is not a good one <laughs> so that's another kind of freedom but that's again it's a kind of utopian i feel that there's something about being a human being we should be free the default like freedom of expression should be we should be free to roam that should be the default i don't think it's utopian there are countries where it's the law that you can roam wherever you want there's a right to roam and this is a very good reason you know it's a firing range it's a it's a delicate crop it's a you know there's a rare orchid <laughs> just uh, just in that field that you want to walk across but i want to ask about art because you're one of the few humanists and even fewer humanist philosophers who've written and thought and, and, and spoken about art, art and philosophy, but art in general. Do the arts, they're of particular value in, in your life? Well, the simple answer is yes. I mean, music and the visual arts particularly, but literature too. But I'm not unusual in that. I think you'll find a lot of people value the arts and performance arts, particularly at the moment because we're very aware of of the restrictions um something that's interested me is that that within the visual arts the long history of western art is predominantly religious and yet i find a lot of great value in religious art um and it's not purely formal it's connected with the narratives and the stories as well and that's almost um um an admission that there's something I don't get about religious art because for many of the people who created it and many of the religious people who experience it, it's not just a representation of a myth or or an elaboration of a story. Right. It's actually the truth about a miracle or the truth about a resurrection. Uh, and there's something almost magical about it. Um, but I think I think the humanist aspect of art is even better than that because these are things that human beings have done which are absolutely amazing playing variations on a, on religious themes in a way that can still stir yeah. us hundreds hundreds of years after their creation and 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 are you know obviously kept in kind of great temples of art around the world um religious art is fascinating and interesting and and i would recommend that if you if you're the kind of humanist who 
is at the more secular end, he just thinks, oh, religious stuff, let's not look at that. Um, look again, because it's amazing. Um, well, exactly. And and such people don't have any problem looking at, you know, um, statues or even uh, modern pictures of, of dead religious stories, Greeks and Romans and so on. So I don't see why they should... And anyway, it's quite easy to imagine yourself a Christian when you're looking at a, a good picture of the crucifixion, isn't it? You can... you. It, you know what it means and you can take a leap. I, I don't know because, you know, I have been a Christian, um, but I think some people have a particular kind of reverence before pictures and they become icons and they become mm. a kind of gateway to another reality for them. Obviously, that's not how I experience them. So I probably don't experience them the same way. And, and they might say, oh, you're just play acting being a Christian. That's not what it really means. But Maybe. Maybe. You're currently writing a book about death. And, um, you know, I think everyone's, in everyone's worldview, in everyone's basic beliefs, um, what they think about death is incredibly important. Uh, what, why did you, well, firstly, why did you decide to write about death? And, and, and do you, are you conscious of it playing any very important role in your life? So the reason I wrote the book uh, started writing the book was because I became fascinated with Jeremy Bentham's auto icon, the the kind of puppet like oh, yeah. figure made out of a skeleton. It's got a wax head, but he originally wanted his own um, preserved head to be on this, the, the kind of statue made out of his body. This was uh, from a, quite an early age. He'd left a will that that specified that this should happen. Um, it actually came out of, of, of making a podcast about, about the um, the icon, the auto icon, um, fa- absolutely fascinating because I hadn't realised that it wasn't just a kind of uh, secular way of dealing with a dead body in in quite a quirky way, actually, um, but no. but was a political in several ways. It was um, Jeremy Bentham wanted to um, show that there's nothing particular to be feared about the body he actually had his own body dissected in public by a friend after his death Um, and he left his body to medical science which was a very radical thing to do in the early 19th century because most of the bodies the cadavers were coming from um, executed criminals or dug up illegally uh, by grave diggers and um, so he wanted first of all to be a kind of um, uh, leader in that, um, recognizing the importance of giving your body to medical science and that nothing terrible will happen if you do give your body to medical science. And actually, the body is a beautiful thing and how it fits together is wonderful. You know, he wanted the parts of his body to be exhibited in that way. Um, but it was also a reaction against the church who had the kind of monop- monopoly on who got buried where. And if his body was never actually put in the ground, there wasn't the issue about about um, does it end up in a church graveyard? Does it? Do you have to kind of pay the pay the vicar, as yeah. it were, to get the uh, to get the plot? Um, so the, there were those things going on, but there's also a kind of vanity thing going on. He wanted it to be like a statue. It it re, it's almost like a piece of performance art, actually. That um, the the my. Um, worry is that the terms of his will weren't respected he'd asked for his head to be shrunken 
not shrunken, to be um, mummified. And when it was mummified, oh. um, the his friends felt that it looked too grotesque. It had glass eyes put in, little blue glass eyes, which he carried around in his pocket for a lot of his life, ready for the event, um, which matched his eyes. But it, but it was very wrinkly and and um, dark. The skin from the from the process of uh, yeah. of um, preserving it, and they felt it was too shocking to put on the auto icon, um, and so they had a a wax head commissioned. But it would have been far more powerful as a memento mori to actually have the head. Um, yes, and, it would and I think that's a you know the head exists, but it's um it's rarely displayed. Um, and I, there was a brief period, wasn't there, when one could go yeah. and see it? We had an office trip there. But it shouldn't necessarily have been decapitated like that. I think it should be stuck back on the spike on the top of his skeleton there and put it on show. And, and <laughs> okay, and this is what made you well, want to write that, about death. All those things combined: things about the body, things about. Um, very interesting what happens to people after death um how we think about our own deaths how difficult that is as a humanist i don't have any illusion that i'm going to continue to exist literally after my death oh, I, I guess you could be a humanist with those kind of um views but it's not clear you, you certainly wouldn't be going to paradise um no. <laughs> uh, so how do i think about my death how do i think about what I want to happen with my body. Is it rational to think about sticking bodies in the ground or cremating them? Are there other ways of treating bodies? So all those questions got me going on on this. And and then I, I, I got sidetracked into the philosophical discussions about whether death is a harm and all those sorts of questions and, and whether it's even possible to imagine your own death because when you're there, death is not and, and so on. And when death's there, you're not. Um, um, yeah, so... Um, and do you find do you find when you look at your own sort of motivations in life or any other important values or beliefs you have that there are any that are influenced by particular beliefs about death? Well, I think keeping in mind that you are going to die is quite a useful thing in life, um, and the the, mm. the non repeatability of many things that happen in life. It's easy to feel that we're somehow immortal and we can always go back and do something again. But actually the joy is that you can't and and that these are all things which are passing and, and changing and we are in flux in that sense. Um, so um, I've been guilty of thinking I've got all the time in the world to do things. Uh, and, and I think a certain amount of healthy reflection on death is good. A kind of morbid obsession with it, probably not so good. Because you're always thinking you're going to die, you'd be possibly drawn to hypochondria, um, obsessively thinking about what what you're going, to, how you're going to leave your possessions and what's going to happen to them. Um, but I do think I do think there is a place for death that we um, obviously there's all the cliches about how um, we are protected from seeing dead bodies dead human bodies for the most part in our lives and and how weird that is i mean i was an adult before i saw a, a, a dead body and that was only because somebody took me into a dissecting room to show me one because i was kind of in, intrigued um uh, and then i saw a, a corpse pulled out of a river in nottingham once and and it's actually quite a learning it felt to me like an important learning experience yeah and and not something at all frightening but it's something strange and and we are drawn to that you know, we're drawn to think about yeah. things. Yeah, I think seeing people dead and also seeing people die, we don't 
see people die as much as we might have. Exactly. I mean, I've, and that's been a very powerful experience for me on the occasions that I've have seen people die. So, so um, in the absence of that, I think there are other ways of thinking about death, thinking about the meaning of death that are valuable. And I think any humanist, anybody at all, should spend some time thinking about death, just as like it's a big question about what death is and and what the implications are that we will die and that we don't know the moment that we will die. You know, I've lost quite a few friends at a young age and it's always very shocking, but um, that could be us, any of us. We don't know that. Um, Will we have led a life that we're happy with up to that point? Or are we always postponing the thing that we really want to do, the real thing that we think will make our lives worthwhile? To a point which may not actually be achievable, thinking about death could could actually bring us to the point where we do some of those things. I feel, um, and I, I certainly I've been influenced by young people's deaths in that respect. Thinking how lucky I am to have had more time than my friends who died, um, who died young. I mean, two people, two of my friends who studied for their PhDs at the same roughly the same time as me, both died before they got to their forties, and that seems like a tragedy. Um, obviously the worst tragedies, but it definitely made me think about yeah. my own life. Clarity, being accessible, free speech, thinking aloud, thinking together, thinking on the page, being free and open. Thank you, Nigel, for telling us what you believe. Thank you. That was Nigel Warburton telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the ninth and final episode of the fourth season. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining up as a supporter or a member. You can also find out more about humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available online and at all good bookshops. Mm-hmm.